welcome to Our American Experiment, a podcast that engages leading thinkers and doers, creatively working to strengthen the United States of America, the longest running experiment to defend individual liberty and promote human flourishing the world has ever seen. This is Our American Experiment. Hey, it's Jessica Dahl here in our nation's capital. I am joined by my co-host, Evan Baer, live from Austin, Texas. Evan, you were just able to sit down with Congressman Mike Gallagher. You were in his offices inside the Longworth Congressional Building uh, here in Washington, D.C. So tell me a little bit about Mike. Oh, my gosh. Well, I had an amazing time with Mike recently. And it's funny, for so many people, a member of Congress is really intimidating. They're in a suit, and they have the member's pin on, and you pass through security. Now, I happen to have known Mike from college over 10 years ago and there's some element of like seeing us play a little bit of dress up but really cool to get to reconnect with someone and learn about wow a lot has happened from time when we were hanging out studying late night in the library to fast forward to serving as a member of congress so mike is one of the youngest serving members of congress which is fascinating. Can you tell me, though, what was one of the most exciting things that you had on your mind to ask him about? Well, Mike is back from about a decade of service in the military where he really was thinking about uh, deploying on a mission and trying to deliver on very specific goals. And I'm new to the political arena, but I just had this sense that curiosity, you know, do politicians really have specific goals? What are they trying to achieve other than just trying to get reelected. So it was really fun to go in and help tease out some of Mike's thinking about how is serving in a elected office similar or different from serving in a uh, office serving in the military. So just to prepare our listeners today, so you got you truly got a front row seat to what Mike's day-to-day job was. This was not just him telling you, you literally experienced it. So tell the listeners what they can expect in this interview. Well, it was an unorthodox interview, that is to say the least. So you're going to Washington, D.C., you got to get dressed up, you put a suit on, you want to look respectable, and you go through security, and you walk down the marble halls, and you get into this office. And as we got to dive into, um, there's a process for which office do you get? It's kind of a bidding war. And anyway, we'll hear that really fun story with Mike. But we're sitting down in his office, and his press secretary is there to uh, make sure that I don't ask anything too inappropriate or that Mike doesn't say anything too inappropriate, which, by the way, we didn't, I don't think. And uh, we're sitting there, and so there's this normal clock up on the wall. It looks like the clock in a, you know, a public middle school, but it has these little lights on it. And it's the clock that actually tells the members of Congress when they have to go vote on the House floor. We are about five minutes into this interview and all of a sudden it's like a fire alarm goes off. It's like, and I'm sitting there like, wait, is this a fire alarm? What just happened? The chief of staff looks over and says, Mike, you've got to get to the floor. So we just decided, hey, let's keep this interview going as we literally walk through the halls of Congress into the U.S. House of Representatives, where I stand outside of the floor of the House, watch Mike cast his votes, and then come back out and continue the interview amidst five votes over a half hour. So did you get to go up the official elevator with other congressmen holding your 12-inch long 
uh, Mike. So Mike and I are walking uh, through the tunnel. We get to the elevator and all the members are racing to uh, get to the floor to vote because it's really bad if you miss the bells and you don't vote. So we're all crammed in there. I've got headphones on my head and this foot long black microphone that I'm holding. And Mike is kind of making eyes with the other members of Congress. He's like, don't worry. It's a friend of mine. So what I did may have been illegal. Let's hope it wasn't. We're not going to publish any of the uh, uh, audio from what other members of Congress said, but we did keep the tape rolling and we did keep the interview going. Okay. With those images in our heads, I cannot wait to dive into this interview. This is Mike Gallagher. I represent the 8th District of Wisconsin, Northeast Wisconsin, a new member of Congress, and I am talking with Evan Bear outside the House floor right now. Okay. Let's just start out with an easy one, which is... Uh, What's your name and what's your position? Uh, Mike Gallagher, and I represent the 8th District of Wisconsin, which is Northeast Wisconsin. Green Bay, Appleton, home of the Packers. Love it. And where are we sitting right now? We are sitting in Longworth House Office Building in a very small office. They give all the small offices to the new members of Congress. So I'm lucky not to be in the basement closet. Uh, how does that work? Do you get to pick an office or like lowest guy gets the worst office? Yeah, it's actually really funny. Uh, they have a, a big lottery draw when you come here for orientation. So everyone, there was like 52 new members of Congress. Everyone got a number that we drew randomly and they televise the thing like C-SPAN covers it and everyone's freaking out and uh, they do this dramatic draw and then everyone runs around for two hours looking at all the offices available and then people pick and they have it displayed on a board and so there's a lot of drama involved in picking the office. But as someone said, as people were freaking out to me, uh, they said, don't worry about what office you get because you know who really likes whatever office you get? The person that you beat in this election. They would gladly have that office. They'll be happy with whatever you got. So, And, and how'd you do in the lottery? I was like 26, so I didn't expect to be able to get into Longworth. Uh, Longworth, while not the most majestic building, is located right in the middle. It's very convenient. And what you do as a member of Congress is just run around back and forth from the floor every day and to your committee hearings. And so being in Longworth is prize real estate. And so I got lucky. For whatever reason, this office went overlooked. And it used to belong to Todd Young, who's now a senator. So I inherited it from my fellow Marine, Todd Young. That, uh, that bodes well for your future. Okay, we're going to go way back. Um, I want to hear just a little bit about, about Little Mike and about Gallagher's Pizza. Little Mike, I was unaware that like that was a nickname that I had. Uh, so I was born in uh, Green Bay, Wisconsin. Uh, hey, while we're here, yeah. there's some beeps to listeners beeps. who think that's a fire alarm. Yeah. T- tell us about those beeps real quick. Every time you criticize house leadership, your clock beeps like that. No. Yours, uh, yours goes off frequently, I think. Right. That's right. Um, that indicates that votes are going to happen soon. And each of the lights... Uh, indicates something else, which I don't quite understand, despite being here for 10, 10 months. But Does staff, staff knows? It? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so born in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Uh, my family's been there forever, uh, since 18, uh, the 1830s. Uh, my family's all obstetricians in Green Bay, Wisconsin. My grandfather, my father, my uncles, my sister, have delivered all the babies in Northeast Wisconsin. And then 20 years ago, they also decided they wanted to get into the pizza delivery business. And so they started a little... Uh, place called Gallagher's Pizza. I'm not sure why naming an Italian food place Gallagher's made any sense, but the tagline was Italian food, Irish spirit. And uh, so the family motto is now, uh, whether it's babies or pizza, the Gallagher's always deliver. And uh, I grew up working in that. We had a, a big one downtown and I sort of would bartend there 
on dry night when I was a kid. And then I would deliver pizza and I got to deliver pizza to the Packer locker room as a kid. And I once, true story, uh, got salad dressing for Brett Favre. He asked me to get him salad dressing. Uh, do you remember the flavor? Uh, it was French dressing, I believe. Okay. But what I remember more than anything is I ran across the locker room of the Packers and I ran back and I said, here, Mr. Favre, here's your salad dressing. And uh, he looked at me and said, you know what, kid? You're all right. You're all right, kid. And for like a 10-year-old kid, like Brett Favre telling you you're all right is like God himself telling you yeah. you're all right. So it was a transformative experience and put me on the path to achieving something with my life. I mean, it starts with the salad dressing. I love that. Uh, I want to hop forward to uh, uh, take a few skips here talk about the campaign. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that you had a lot of people encourage you to run for Congress. Uh, can you tell us about someone who thought it wasn't a good idea? Yeah, that's a great question. It's funny. Uh, most of my mentors on the national security side did express some doubt about what I was getting ready to do. And I had one in particular uh, who really encouraged me to get my PhD. Because you got to understand, everything I had done in my life was geared towards either staying in the Marine Corps for a career or pursuing a career in the national security community, whatever that meant, whether it was in the intelligence community or in the military community. Um, and politics was very much not in the equation. I had a mentor of mine saying, well, you have to become very comfortable with the fact that you're going to have to constantly ask people for help and support, particularly on the financial side. And not ever having done that, not ever having been out there and putting myself out there in that way, that was a really difficult thing to get used to. And I would say, I do think the demands of fundraising, uh, particularly in the House where you're running every two years, are very difficult and at the source of a lot of the problems that we face. Um, and in particular, they just crowd out the time that you have while you're here. See, again, when I'm saying something critical about the status quo, the beef goes off. Um, to actually do the real work of going to your committee hearings, analyzing legislation, getting to know your colleagues on both sides of the aisle, and identify areas where you can work together. Instead, you see members of Congress just running around, going across the street. And I'm afraid that too many people think more about the reelection than they do about problem solving here. And so I haven't yet figured out a solution to that problem. I have some ideas. That's why I work a lot on with my freshman colleagues in particular on congressional reform. But I do think the president tapped into this in the campaign, the whole drain the swamp message, why it resonates, uh, why I hear about it every day, and why I believe in a lot of aspects of it is because people have a sense that the status quo isn't really working out for either party, quite frankly. Yeah, I, uh, in my short stint working for Congressman Frank Wolf, Republican, longtime from Virginia, uh, he commented that over his 30-something years in service, uh, early on, your kids would be on swim team together, you'd hang out, and over time, you're racing to fundraise, you're racing back to the district, and you're no longer really friends with, especially maybe even your own party, but certainly people on the other side. How have you seen sort of a spirit of bipartisanship show up or not uh, in your class? So early on in our class, really the first time we got to get uh, to know each other on both sides was when we did this policy retreat up in Boston. And, you know, what we discovered was despite being a very diverse group with different backgrounds, we were all kind of speaking a lot of the same language. And there was this genuine commitment of wanting to work together and get some stuff done, uh, even for my Democratic colleagues. And uh, I was really 
positively surprised by that and impressed. And so we came back and we signed something that got no attention at the time, which we called the Commitment to Civility. And it basically was a document that said, uh, that a Republican colleague of mine drafted and everyone signed on both sides, saying, you know, we're not gonna agree on everything, but we're gonna try and work together. And where we disagree, we can do it without being disagreeable. We don't have to demonize each other. People want more civility in American politics. What's interesting is that then got attention in the wake of the shooting at the congressional baseball practice of Steve Scalise and a few others. Uh, and there was an effort to re-sign it. And as I understand it, there's still an effort going on for to get all the members of Congress, not just the freshmen. Now, what I don't know is whether that spirit of civic-mindedness emerges every two years with the new members and if it just dissipates naturally over time as people get, you know, uh, They've, they've sort of fallen in love with the status quo or that, that sort of re-election dynamic uh, takes hold. But I would hope that it doesn't. And I do think there's a genuine effort among the new members to kind of change the paradigm a bit. Has that played out for you personally? Like, is there a, a maybe a Democratic member of the freshman class that you disagree with on a lot of stuff, but you've really become kind of friends with? Yeah, it's interesting. So I, I, I start my day with a, a bipartisan activity, which is working out. We have a bipartisan workout group um, in the house gym. And, uh, I've gotten to know a lot of my colleagues on the other side, uh, in particular, uh, Josh Gottheimer, who's a Democrat from New Jersey. And, uh, obviously Evan and I went to college in New Jersey, which is always bizarre to me that you're not allowed to pump your own gas in New Jersey. You should do a podcast on that. That really bothers me. I like pumping my own gas. That, that'll generate, uh, three listeners. It'll be, it'll be good. Yeah, let's do it. Three devoted followers and listeners to your podcast. Um, and you know, listen, I, we, we disagree on a lot of stuff, but his campaign slogan, I remember you showed me a picture, a uh, big sign in New Jersey. It said, uh, low taxes, Jersey values. And so I'm like, okay, I don't really know what Jersey values are, <laughs> but I like the idea of, you know, Democrats talking about lowering taxes and uh, those small relationships, you know, maybe they don't amount to much, but I've been able to, to get two bipartisan pieces of legislation uh, one fully across the finish line to sign. Uh, this was a global war on terrorism memorial bill with uh, Seth Moulton, who's uh, a Democrat but a fellow Marine, and we kind of have a shared experience in the Marine Corps. And, and then another on um, countering Hezbollah's use of human shields with a Democrat uh, from New York. So my sense is that if you are committed to the effort and if you're okay with working on stuff that won't get you a lot of headlines, um, there ends up being a lot that you can get done. Go. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, just started, but Naomi said you're good with one more. Okay. Can we walk and talk? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. We can try it. All right. We're going to head with uh, Congressman well, Gallagher. And then walk and talk. Uh, so just what we did, we put the TV on. We're listening to beeps. So, Mike, what are you, <laughs> what are we watching up here? You're watching a clock that suggests how much time is left to vote. So there's nine minutes and 55 seconds. So that means you have to get to the House floor in the next nine minutes and 55 seconds and stick your voting card into a little machine and press yes, no, or present. I'm not a parliamentarian, but it seems like there's no one in there right now. So everyone waits until the last second and then they hold votes open. Uh, and then the, uh, the person who's presiding over the floor will bang on the gavel at some point and say, are there any members who haven't voted? And then usually you'll have like three members running in saying, you know, wait, 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 keep the vote open. So... It's an interesting spectacle. You also just put your jacket on. Is it a jackets only kind of deal? You got to wear a jacket. You're technically not allowed to wear jeans, but there are some members, I don't want to name names, but Sean Duffy, who are known for wearing jeans on the House floor. There's a strict 
dress code. So tie and jacket. You look sharp. I think you're going to really crush this vote. Talk for a minute about what is the, what are the ways that coastal elites don't understand flyover country right now? Okay, so this is really interesting. You asked earlier about whether someone counseled against me going into politics. And I was actually reminded of an earlier decision that I had to make at Princeton about whether to go into the Marine Corps, um, which was unusual. I mean, I think for, for, for people at Princeton of our generation, there wasn't a lot of people joining the military. And this was 2005, so Iraq was kind of at its worst point. Um, and I remember I went to officer candidate school. I had survived, so I earned my commission, but I came back my senior year, and I had to weigh whether or not to accept it, whether to actually join the Marine Corps. And I went to uh, a dinner that was hosted by the Woodrow Wilson School, which was my major, and I asked the, the head of the school and a few other professors that were there, I said, hey, you know, Mike Gallagher, I'm studying Arabic, Middle East, thinking about joining the Marine Corps, here's why, like, what do you think? And almost to a person, every single professor at Princeton said, ah, I'm not sure that would be the best use of your degree. You know, at worst, you should think about joining the intelligence community. And I remember being struck by that and how disconnected that seemed and how disconnected it seemed from my experience, even though I don't come from a military family. Um, you know, it, it was always something that was looked up to and revered where I'm from in Northeast Wisconsin. And uh, I just remember sort of being offended by that. And uh, I'm not saying I joined the Marine Corps out of spite to my professors, but I do think that disconnect remains. And we only have only 1% of America that served um, in the post 9-11 generation. It does create a disconnect. Now, thankfully, in contrast to previous generations, you know, where Vietnam vets came back and were, were spit on, uh, now everyone seems to have a near universal respect for our sacrifices. But as a result of the all-volunteer force, I think in our daily lives, we can often seem far removed from the problems of Af in Afghanistan and Iraq. And as a result, you know, we don't feel the cost. And so there's a profound debate going on still, even, you know, 16 years after 9-11, about how much we're willing to pay for U.S. global leadership and what lives are we willing to risk. And so I just remember that moment at Princeton. And I do feel that disconnect continues today. I think the Wilson School's motto is what? Princeton in the nation service Indeed. and then in the service of all nations. But somehow, like, their vision is what? CFR dinner parties? That's right. That's right. And I do think, you know, as much as, listen, I, I'm a strong proponent of uh, the what, what people at CFR dinner parties would call the U.S.-backed rules-based global order. Um, but I think there are a lot of hard questions that the national security establishment has to ask themselves, right? I mean, Afghanistan and Iraq are the longest and most costly wars in our nation's history. And I think for a lot of Americans in so-called flyover country, there are a lot of doubts about whether we're going to be able to achieve our objectives there. And so it's incumbent upon people in leadership positions, uh, in public service in particular, like me, to ask those questions and then go back home to my constituents and look them in the eye and say, you know, yeah, we are going to ask young men and women from our own communities to go and risk their lives. But here's why. Here are the U.S. national interests that are at stake, and here is a plausible theory of victory, and here's why we cannot afford to turn inward and ignore the problems that are growing around the world. That's kind of the main effort that I feel like I have in Congress on the Armed Services Committee and the Homeland Security Committee, and as someone who spent most of his life in uniform. But I'll admit, that's a very hard case to make sometimes. It was only during the campaign when things were getting really bad in the wake of uh, Orlando and a few other things that we'd seen around the world um, and the threat posed by ISIS, that people really started to feel it in their gut. I remember people were coming up to me saying, you know, is it safe to go to Packers games this year? Because even in Northeast Wisconsin, we don't feel safe given everything that we see 
on the news every day. So I do think that gut wisdom of the American people is often far smarter than the collective wisdom in a CFR dinner party. You got four minutes oh, and yeah, 40 so seconds. Yeah. It's time to walk. Yeah. This is going to be interesting. We're going to do it. Okay. How is he going to get through security, though? I don't know. <laughs> leave, me, leave me where you have to leave me. Yeah. We're going to walk. This segues nicely to my next topic, which yeah. is, all right, so we're walking down the hall. Uh, you have votes. Pass the Wisconsin flag. You put the genuflect in its presence. Uh, do you know what you're voting on right now? Yes. We are voting on a variety of different bills, including today we're doing the whistleblower Protection Act, um, which relates to a scandal that grew out of the Toma VA in Wisconsin, where there was a whistleblower who raised concerns about over-medication, and then his concerns were ignored, and then tragically he committed suicide the next day. We're going down, and so this would strengthen the protections afforded to whistleblowers uh, in the VA, and hopefully... Oh, sorry, go ahead. So uh, when you had to make these votes, do you know how you're going to vote? Like, you and your staff are making these decisions before you get over there. You know, most of the time we'll do a weekly sort of a hot wash at the beginning of the week and we'll look at uh, what's coming up and we'll debate it and I'll ask my staff for their perspective and if I need more information I'll ask them uh, but if we go and I usually ask them to red team it and try and argue from the other perspective but a lot of times we don't know what amendments will be offered and so there are times when you're going to the floor with information you just got 30 minutes ago and you have to make a decision on the spot based on what you know and your principles. And so I often say for people evaluating candidates for office, in some ways it's, you don't just want to know what they think about each issue. You want to know how they think and how they deal with new information. Because there are so many issues you're going to confront that you've never confronted before. And how you analyze new information and how you build a team is in some ways even more important than what you've believed for 30 years on tax reform. Okay, you're going to go through security now. I don't know how we're going to do it. You think? Yeah. So, okay, so we got now in the heart of the cab. Well, we're walking through the Congressional Art Competition, which each district has a competition, and you get to select a winner and then proudly display the artwork in our nation's capital. It's a cool thing. Okay, so on the notion of votes, uh, sort of somewhat famously in an IJR article, it profiled your tweet sort of being somewhat critical of the president, Donald Trump. Um, how do you think about either using Twitter or in your votes uh, opposing the president or opposing the party leadership? Yeah, so I try and, well, the first thing I say, and I know sometimes get, people get mad at me if I disagree with the president, um, you know, I don't work for the president as a constitutional fact, nor do I work for party leadership. There's 730,000 people in Northeast Wisconsin that elected me. Now, they didn't all vote for me, but I work for all of them. And my allegiance is to them and to the oath that I swore, which is important to defend the Constitution. And so I try and make my positions or take my positions based on my allegiance to that oath and the best interest of my constituents in Northeast Wisconsin. So if that brings me into conflict with the president at time, what I don't want to be is dishonest about it. So... I'm just going to give people an honest take about how I feel. And, you know, if they don't like it, then I'm sorry. I just want to be honest, if nothing else. So, and I listen, I want, <laughs> I'm a Republican. Uh, I want to work with the president. I very much want the agenda to succeed. But when I see anyone in Congress or in the White House doing something that I perceive to distract from that agenda, I feel an obligation to call it out because I want us to get stuff done. I mean, that's what I hear more than anything else from people back home. It's, we want you guys to work together and get stuff done. And I think if we stay focused on that and not on the tweet of the day, then we'll be successful. Mm. 
Have you had a particular moment of a vote you had to cast or a position you had to take publicly that was, you flinched? You, you said, this is how, what I believe, but maybe I shouldn't. Has there been a tough call? Well, I think the most difficult vote we've taken so far is on healthcare. And healthcare is extraordinarily complex. And what I say to my friends on the left is I will concede to you that the healthcare system was broken long before Obamacare. And anytime you're dealing with something that complex, it's going to be a difficult thing. And I spent a lot of time listening to as many people as humanly possible. I wonder if we can get, go in the members elevator. What do you think? Um, probably just trust on the other side. We're in the bowels of the Capitol right now to focus on healthcare again. But what was frustrating about that was uh, we were having this knockdown drag out debate about how we're financing health insurance, which to me, as someone new to this, I kind of thought that missed the point, which we weren't talking about health care reform. And until we find a way to control rising health care costs, I'm not sure how we finance health insurance is going to matter. Um, so sometimes the most frustrating aspect of voting is your inability to control what actually gets voted on or put on the House floor. All right, we are in a very crowded elevator. We have two members of Congress, members of the media. We're doing a walk and talk podcast right now. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go in and vote, okay. and I'm going to come back out here. Okay. And why stand right here? Perfect. Uh, okay, what was the first vote you just had? Uh, this was on a motion to instruct, a Democratic motion to instruct, which basically, we've actually never voted on one of those before. Um, but effectively what it would do is would have ended um, something we voted on the Armed Services Committee, which is to sell excess Army weapons and use that money to fund gun safety programs. So I voted no on that because I support the program. When you go in there to vote, is the tally already up for yeas and nays across R's and D's? So this is interesting. Uh, most of the time, because I'd say a lot of the votes we take aren't that controversial. It's just a running tally depending on when people show up and put their voting card in. But sometimes, and healthcare was an example of this, people, particularly those who are undecided, will wait to see what the tally is because either they don't want to be the deciding vote or they want to see what other people are doing. And so sometimes there's some gamesmanship going on about you know, when people vote and you're waiting and they'll hold the vote open until the last votes come in. Um, and this is the, uh, so the whip might be literally thinking uh, who in the party can not vote for this to protect them on a reelection issue? Yeah, and usually, at least my understanding is that they're not gonna bring a bill to the floor unless they feel pretty solid about their whip count. Like, the leadership's not going to bring a bill to the floor that's going to fail and make them look like. Now, there's a debate about that. I mean, there's people that suggest we should just have an open process and let the chips fall where they may. Um, when I say there's... Even the debate that happens under structured debate in the House is somewhat staged. And I think I alluded to this before, but some of my frustration is that... I mean, next time, do an experiment. Turn on C-SPAN uh, next time you can. And you'll either see... Someone giving a speech to an empty House chamber or an empty committee hearing. And because of that time crunch that I alluded to earlier, it's hard. Like, members just pop into their committee hearings. They say one question, and then they leave just because people don't have time. And people fly out and go back home as soon as the last votes are done. You'll see in our second vote series today, people will immediately get on a plane and fly home. My understanding is that this really picked up in the mid-'90s. And I do think it's correlated at least with a, a decline in, in bipartisanship and, um, and just kind of a general civic tone. So on the strategy question, uh, when you were a Marine, or once a Marine, always a Marine, when you'd be deployed, you'd have 
a real playbook for exactly what you were going to do, what the strategy was, what the tactics were. Did you feel like coming into the House, do you have that kind of playbook of not just how you're going to vote, but how you're going to be a successful member of Congress to advance these things you care about? Yeah, I think uh, one of the earliest pieces of advice I got from, from Paul Ryan and, and a few other people was in the House in particular, you really have to specialize. Uh, I mean, obviously, you have to be as informed as possible about every issue you're voting on, um, and particularly the big issues like tax reform, health care, infrastructure, uh, farm bill. But uh, particularly as a newer member, you have to focus on the few no more than two or three areas where you really want to make a name for yourself. Some of that is dictated by your committee assignments. Uh, I'm on the Armed Services Committee. I'm on the Homeland Security Committee. Most of my professional experience is uh, in the military and the intelligence community. So naturally, I'm going to be a national security guy. So I have to work extra hard to pay attention to uh, particularly ag issues and other things that are very important to my district and I have to fight for. Uh, but as a specialist, I do focus a lot on military and defense issues, but even within that, you know, there are members who are known for, I'm the nuke guy, I'm the, you know, sea power guy, I'm, you know, the military intel guy. So you, I think you really, to the extent there's a strategy, it's how you are spending your time, because it's so limited, and where you're really trying to move the needle and emerge as a, a thought leader on a few discrete set of issues, and hopefully, you know, you put yourself in a place where you can actually make a big difference. So you can uh, write public policy, write laws, uh, you could persuade your colleagues, you can vote. Are there other like tools in the toolkit where you could give speeches or join boards or meet with people that want to be heard? Or how else do you think about having that influence? Definitely. Um, you know, so sort of in contrast to when I was uh, like an undergrad or uh, a grad student. Now, if I write something, uh, now provided it's, it's decent, there's a chance you know, someone's going to publish it in the form of an op-ed or in a journal. So that's a platform, right? So if, if you take the time to think about um, how you want to influence the public debate, you'll be given a platform to do it, and people will read it. I mean, I try and publish as much in my local papers as possible, and not just in sort of the two big ones, but in kind of the smaller ones where they only have you know, 5,000 or so subscribers. Um, and I really do think that that's a, a way in which you can influence the debate, in addition to sort of the platform afforded by social media or if you're given a you know a talk somewhere um you know some members are more aggressive than me in terms of going on cable news i sort of have a self-imposed rule early on that i wasn't going to go on national media just because i felt like a lot of people get lured in by the siren song of that and kind of become in love with the fame of this rather than doing the hard work and i very much want to distinguish myself as someone who's a workhorse more than a show horse um, but i would say what really no one sees um is that beneath the level of legislating or op-ed writing or giving speeches, there's a lot you do and your team does every single day just to help people out back in your district, right? Whether it's helping someone settle a VA claim or a Social Security claim or, hey, we, we, we've done a couple of these now where someone contacted me saying, hey, my, my father passed away a few years ago. He served in the military. We don't know if he was eligible for any awards. Can you check? Mm. And so we work with the Defense Department, and we end up almost always coming back with, yeah, he earned these five awards, and we go back in the district, and we present it to him, uh, or they lost a, a son or a daughter who, who did that. And so it's little stuff like that that really makes a difference that, that I enjoy. And then some other really cool stuff like, and I get to nominate people to serve in our Naval Academy. And when I get to tell a kid in my district that they got accepted to the Naval Academy or West Point and they're going to go serve the country, that is, that is awesome.
Do you, do you remember the first time you did that? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to tell the story, but I'm going to make sure the other vote hasn't gone off real quick. Sorry. Did you miss the vote? No, no. It's good, but it's funny. It shows you how, that I'm still new. I'm, I'm always, like, deathly afraid that I'm going to miss a vote. And uh, so I'm always checking up on the board to make sure that I've, I, I've voted. Have you um, made any really rookie mistakes this year? Um, I've said any number of dumb things uh, when I do press. You know, it's interesting. I, I stand by this, but it certainly got me a lot of attention. Was I didn't it, right after the healthcare vote? Uh, there, there was obviously the celebration at the White House. I did not attend, uh, and then someone asked me about it at a local radio show back in Wisconsin, and I just said what came to mind. I said, "Well, they asked if I, I thought it was a good idea." I said, "No, I don't think the celebration was a good idea." You know, uh, I've never seen the Packers pop champagne at halftime. The point being that, like, we had a lot of work yet to do, and it, you know, it's been a while since I watched Schoolhouse Rock, but the Senate needs to pass something, the President needs to sign it before it becomes law. So the CNN wrote an article saying, freshman congressman, you know, criticizes White House celebration. And um, I certainly heard a lot about that from a lot of people. Um, but there's been areas where, you know, I've said something that, you know, uh, you know, probably discretion would have been the better part of valor. And, um, I still get lost occasionally going from my office to various parts of the Capitol. So there's that. But we were talking about something before. Finish the, uh, the okay. first person you nominated for the Naval Academy. Uh, so I got this. I actually got this tip from a colleague of mine uh, in the house gym during the bipartisan workout group. He's, he gave me this idea, which I implemented, which is when I get like a two-day heads-up notification before they do when they get accepted. So I'll call the principal of their school during school hour, and I'll have the principal get the kid out of class. And so these kids, like, they're exceptionally qualified. I mean, they're, they're, they've never been in trouble in their whole life. So immediately they think they're getting suspended, something that has never happened in their life. So they start freaking out. They do this slow march to the principal's office, and they're just questioning what's going on. And so I sit him down, and I said, uh, hey, I'm on the speakerphone. I said, hey, this is Mike Gallagher. You don't know me, but I represent you in Congress, and I just want to be the first to tell you that you got accepted to the Naval Academy and the first to tell you how proud you've made this community, the state of Wisconsin, and I look forward to watching you make the country proud in the years to come. And if you ever need anything, don't hesitate to call me. And that's, that was cool. So I abused that privilege, um, but that's, uh, that was something I'll never forget. And I continue to do that. And these kids are incredible. I mean, as discouraged as people might get in the present politically divided moment, the quality of young people that are still rogering up to serve this country will renew your faith in this country. Any, uh, I need to check again. I'm sorry. What did you just vote on? We voted on disaster relief. Are you for or against disasters? I'm for, I'm a, that was a tricky question. Uh, I'm against disasters. What's remarkable is we've seen five national sort of tragedies in the last seven weeks. So four natural and then one obviously human made in Las Vegas. Um, but there was a very contentious debate about the structure of this relief package and whether there were accompanying reforms. So I suspect it will pass, and, and I understand we obviously need to be there for the people of Puerto Rico and, and Texas, but there's a lot of us in the House that want to see real reform and recognize that we're on track to spend a ton of money right now, um, while not yet funding things like the military, which we need know we need to fund after six years of devastating defense sequestering BCA caps. And so sometimes the urgent crowds out that sort of longer-term view of how do we really tackle what's driving up our debt and are we really willing to pass on 
this burden of debt to the next generation. I don't think we should be. I think it's immoral. Um, but it's really hard to have a conversation about the things that are really driving up our debt, right? And I, in, my, in my campaign, I had $2 million spent against me saying I wanted to take away Social Security for everyone over the age of 65 in America and kill my own grandma, essentially. What I was just trying to do was debate the fact that, well, it's not on sound financial footing. If we want it to be there, not only for my grandma, but for future generations, we're going to have to muster up the courage to do something about it. So let's come to the table and have a conversation. And the problem with that kind of policy interest is that, like, there are no current events that make people wake up and be very passionate about the debt, right? So we have yeah. Vegas, we have Puerto Rico. Uh, I'm assuming uh, in the week following Vegas, you get hundreds or thousands of constituent letters about gun control? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and obviously, I understand the, the passion and what we saw was a tragedy. But even with that, it just seemed in the immediate reaction, both sides were just retreating to their corners rather than having a conversation. So what me and a couple of fellow members who are veterans with a little bit of experience in handling firearms said is, okay, is there a common sense step we could take? So we sent a letter to the ATF saying, take a look at the bump stock issue. And we're of the opinion that any piece of gear that effectively turns a semi-automatic weapon into an automatic weapon should be regulated as an automatic weapon. And if you're a strong Second Amendment supporter like me, that's a common sense step you can take forward. But, you know, uh, I just would say that whenever a, a gun control advocate comes to me and says, well, you know, this particular fix is supported by 60% of the American people right now, I'll say, okay, I got it. But the Bill of Rights in many ways was put into effect to guard against the ability of the majority at any given moment, due to what's popular at the time, to infringe on the rights of the minority. So I do think to the extent you can, in the immediacy of Washington, D.C., you've got to try and step back and think about things with a 10 or a 20-year perspective. And my hope is that my generation, I'm one of three millennials in Congress, can step up and say, hey, we're the ones that are going to have to deal with all this crap in 30 years if the current generation just keeps kicking down the can, kicking the can down the road to ours. So let's step up now and figure out a way where we can break through this mess. Give me one sec to look. we got to hit on the most critical issue of the day, which is it is rumored. That is, okay. One, baby. This is the second. Dallas fan? I can't. I can't. I'm just a neutral news guy. So uh, the real. The real question is, there's a rumor that you've recently decided to start sleeping in your office. Confirm or deny? <sighs> the rumors are true. I, uh, I do sleep in my office. Um, I, I bizarrely love it. I don't know. Um, Can you, like, when you're picking your congressional furniture, is there, like, a futon option, or how does that work? I just got, like, a cheap fold-up mattress off Amazon and I fold it up every morning, I fold it out at night and I sleep effectively on the floor in a little antechamber in my office. But you know, when I'm here, I'm working all the time and I said I was going to treat this thing like a deployment and so I'm trying to do that literally. It's not uncommon. I mean, there are a few, a few dozen people that sleep in the office? There's way more than that. I think, I think there's at least 100 members of Congress that sleep in their office. Will you Paul Ryan sleeps in his office. Um, and people have sort of turned it into an art form. I'm new to it, so I'm still experimenting with different systems. But um, at late at night, you'll bizarrely see a lot of members of Congress just walking around in, like, shorts and flip-flops. <laughs> Is there like a late night pub, like in Canon, people just kind of hang out? Uh, <laughs> there's no bar in the, the office building. There's the Capitol Hill Club, which is like the Republican club, and the Democrats have their own clubs where a lot of, you're not allowed to do anything political, you know, like fundraising on uh, federal government property. So you have to go physically to a different location. And so that's where a lot of that happens. And then every night there's like 
an endless number of, of things going on. And uh, so you really, I mean, you're lucky to kind of get back by 9.30 at the earliest and just hit the rack tired. So. Okay, this really is the last one. Uh, being a member of Congress must be really difficult. Uh, I noticed on your standing desk, first of all, you have a standing desk. That was very cool. Thank you. Uh, you also have a piece I'm not of... Sure anyone has referred to that as cool before, but... Uh, you also have a piece of duct tape over your front-facing camera. Oh. And then you have a handwritten to-do list. Yeah, check your votes. Can you check your yeah, list? check my votes. Stay tuned. Okay, so uh, I am standing outside the speaker's lobby here. Mike is pacing back and forth. I think he's never voted before. It's a new freshman thing. Okay, so okay, the we're, tip. we're trying to figure out how do you get all of your work done as a member of Congress? Like, yeah. are you a Tim Ferriss guy? Are you a, a... I love his podcast. I listen to it. I'd love to meet him at some point. He's a Princeton guy, right? Yeah, yeah. Have you met him? Uh, yeah, I have. He recently moved to Austin, uh, and uh, he's just life hacker extraordinaire. So what's any, like, yeah. tips, tricks? You, you work out early. Yeah. How do you organize your day? What do you read? Yeah. I have one, I really have only one life hack that works for me, and that is to wake up at 4 a.m. and to do an hour. I call it, this sounds stupid, I call it like my sacred hour, and nothing can interfere with that. I literally have an app on my computer that blocks out internet for an hour. You can set any time period, you type in your administrative password, and it will not allow you to access the internet. I throw my phone in a different room, I do my Catholic thing, and then I just, I write and I read for an hour. And my most important task of the day that actually requires me to think offensively rather than just being on defense and responding, I will devote to that my most important hour. Then I go work out, and I like it because, you know, by 7 a.m., I feel like I've kind of, I've taken care of my most important business, and the rest of the day I'm just kind of adapting and, and trying to survive. So that's my only life hack. I'm trying to spend less time on social media, too. I think it's making us all stupid. And uh, I haven't yet figured out how to eliminate Twitter or email from my life. But if you have an idea, I'm more than willing to do that. It's cur- it requires me to go to bed super early. So by 9.30, I'm, like, falling asleep. But you've got, like, a good eye on Instagram. I mean, these photos with your parents at the White House. You're always at, like, chicken dinners. It's a good feed. That was an incredible interview, Evan. There was so much good content, so many things that I would love to just follow up with with Mike. So I want to just take us back to when you were standing outside that room uh, where, the, where the congressmen and women were racing to make their votes at sort of at the last minute. You're on that elevator with them. Mike looks a lot different than his colleagues in the House of Representatives. He's a lot younger. In fact, he is the youngest member of Congress. Tell me about just the juxtaposition there. Well, it's a great observation. Uh, Mike literally is probably half the age of most of the other members. And even just visually uh, watching these old guys, you know, come off the floor, go into the bathroom, kind of slap each other on the back. Uh, Mike certainly has rapport with them, but there was some sense in which we were at a VFW potluck and Mike was one of the guy's sons. Uh, He's a lot younger and I think that's been one of his challenges in the sense that, you know, he's actually on Instagram because he has 
friends on Instagram. He's a normal person. He's a young person. And the old guys are getting like printouts of photos from their secretary that they found on Twitter. So there are a lot of differences between Mike and his peers. Do you think, though, that the fact that he is a millennial and that he's younger, maybe that gives him just a little bit of grace to be able to question the status quo and the way that his other sort of older, more established colleagues are able to, um, in the sense that, you know, millennials do question authority and do question power. And Mike did say, you know, I don't work for the president. Now that can present challenges in a lot of cases, but it, it, he believes at the core that he represents the people of Wisconsin. And I think that's, I think that's really interesting. Do you think that that has to do with a millennial mindset specifically, or, or do you think it's something different? I think Mike probably has to balance this tension between being the young guy that, oh, isn't that sweet? They kind of pat him on the head and don't take him seriously with, oh, this is the young guy fresh back from serving the country, deployed in Iraq and Afghanistan, and he's young and he understands technology. Wow, we really have to listen to him. You know, selfishly, I hope that it's more of the latter, but I do worry that it may be some of the former at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I think Mike is really going to great lengths to get over that hump of sort of the older guys and he's this young new upstart. He he really seems committed to developing that sense of camaraderie. Uh, he you know, I love that he talked about uh, going to the gym together in the mornings and that he spends time doing that. He he developed he was able to develop relationships with with guys from the other side as a result of doing that. So I think that there's a lot that um, some of our other members of Congress could probably probably learn from that. Well and that's a funny thing. I think a lot of people assume that members of the House or members of the Senate that they're one big family and maybe they have dormitories and they have long debates where they exchange big ideas with each other. But the reality of what's happening on the floor of the House or the Senate is though C-SPAN makes it look like they're giving this impactful speech of persuading people like you used to see like in the British Parliament, the reality is that they're pretty much all staged debates with basically no one except for the janitor on the floor of the House. No one's actually listening to them. So Mike was just approaching this in a fresh way of saying, hey, listen, especially to build rapport not only with the Republicans but also with the Democrats, I need to become friends with these people. And I think Brene Brown has a great line. She says, people are hard to hate close up, so move in. And that's just a spirit that Mike is bringing to bear. And like you said, I wish it's one that more people adopted. I think Mike also said something really interesting about what you should think about when electing somebody to Congress. He he said that he was surprised at literally the level of uh, just in for incoming information and how much he had to synthesize that really quickly. He had to do it quick on his feet. I mean, as you as you heard the, the those loud kind of buzzing noises happening throughout the interview, I mean, th these are issues, some of which he has never encountered before. And I was just like, I was really surprised about how, his his sort of insight that when you think of who you want to elect to Congress, you got to think about somebody who really has good judgment, who can think quickly, who can move on their feet. And that sometimes is a very different profile than somebody who may have a couple of policies that they can pontificate in front of C-SPAN on for hours ad nauseum on end. I think that's a very, those are two very different sort of dynamics. Well, the, exactly right. There was the whole joke about the uh, one of the healthcare bills that literally if someone had read at a regular reading pace, they literally could not have finished reading the multiple thousand page bill by the time it went to vote. So what a member of Congress has to do, remember, they are probably heading over to the RNC or the DNC every single day or every other day to dial for dollars. 
the moment they vote that last vote when the house is in session they go to reagan airport they get on a plane and they fly back to the district to be back with their family and to do campaign events they may have a staff of eight to 12 people on the house side uh, double that on the senate side but they're given these mountains of paperwork of bills to read through so you're exactly right we're not putting people into office like Mike because we know exactly how he's going to vote on everything. I think we're voting for someone like Mike because we have faith in how he's going to make a decision. And that's the best I think the voters can do. Yeah, and your point too about how much time he is spending on his job, I think is, is uh, makes it all the more important that he's setting aside personal time for him. I, I, I love that he is making his morning time sacred. The poor man gets up really, really early in the morning and he goes until the wee hours of the night, literally sleeping overnight in his office as a lot of his, his colleagues do. What an insane lifestyle to have. Yeah, and he really does see it as a deployment. Uh, looking at his lifestyle, thinking about how hard the role is and how much pressure there is, I don't know how you could stay in the job for more than 10 years, but certainly a lot of people people do that. But overall, I left with just this real sense that Mike's bringing a really fresh perspective. He's in there. He's both learning some of the tricks of the trade, but also thinking really creatively. Gosh, I so believe in these principles of limited government and free markets, but there's some disconnect. There's a disconnect between the 20 and 30-somethings that he knows back in Wisconsin, what they long for, what they want to see in this country, how they want their lives to be improved, and how the Republican Party, and honestly the Democratic Party, is talking about it in Congress. And so the task before Mike and really any young person involved in some of these endeavors is to help do some of that critical translation work. And I think Mike's going to be one of the people that helps usher us into that new era. It's a Herculean task indeed, but he seems up for the challenge. Well, if you start your morning with sacred hour and you keep a to-do list on your desk, I think you can accomplish anything. This is Jessica Dahl from Washington, D.C. and Evan Baer from Austin, Texas. Until next time. This has been Our American Experiment, a podcast about the longest running experiment to promote human flourishing the world has ever seen.